So Chris and I read this intro live on Twitch, where every Thursday at 5pm British time, we read the latest in the week's tech news. So if you're interested in that, please do join us in the chat. You can chat to us live on the show at twitch.tv slash thattechshow. Who have we got coming up on Tuesday's episode then, sir? Felix. 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 (laughs) Felix Dalke. Oh, you managed to pronounce it, did you, when you were doing the intro? <laughs> <laughs> he says it. He says it in the episode, so I just copy what they say. Um, yeah, so we have uh, Felix, who, well, who is who is he? We'll record this. We'll reuse this for the intro. <laughs> He's yeah. a CTO, isn't he? Polly Polly? He is, yeah. So Felix is a really interesting uh, chap. Um, you know, he's been... He's CTO of Poly Poly. He's been part of Adblock Plus. Um, he's done a lot of building up organizations as um, both CTO and sort of principal engineer, I suppose. He's a very hands-on CTO. What I think is quite interesting about Felix is he's done a hell of a lot of remote working. So he's kind of ahead of the curve where the rest of us are just settling into working remotely and working from home. Uh, he's already had a whole load of these ways of working set up. Um, has a very different approach to working remotely than a lot of people and uh, as a result has been able to build teams around the globe and has been doing that for the last sort of uh, 10 years really so it's a, it's an interesting talk on how to approach things differently I suppose and just keep tweaking to make sure that you're doing the right thing I think there's a lot of inspect and adapt in there but sort of very natural I think for Felix to figure out how to work well with other people and interestingly a lot of his inspiration comes from uh, online gaming as a, as, a, as a child people you've never actually met and working together collaboratively as a team you know that doesn't have to be just playing Counter-Strike <laughs> or Halo or whatever it is. Um, yeah. it, it actually can, can be in your organization too. There you go. Ship it. That's the intro. My name is Felix Dalke. I'm the CTO of a company called PolyPoly. Poly. We're building a platform that allows people to control what happens to their personal data. Before that, I have been working for six years as the CTO of a company called IO, (laughs) that rings a bell. And before that, I've been working as a programmer for another decade or so in various companies. Great. Well, personal data and ad blocking, I suppose those two have something tied together. Talk about your current project then. What's the intention about controlling that personal data? Privacy space seems to be pretty hot right now. Mm-hmm. But indeed, at IO, we always thought about doing something a little bit beyond ad blocking, give people more control over what happens on their computer and with their data beyond not seeing ads. That's kind of all we managed to pull off there. <laughs> My current project is a little bit more ambitious. We're basically building a platform where you can import all of your data from existing sources like Facebook and LinkedIn and so on. And then you keep it purely locally. So local decentralized system. Works a bit like Kazaa, I guess, <laughs> like the old file sharing stuff. We're using peer-to-peer protocols for synchronizing that data across your own devices, but nothing of that is sent to any sort of server or backend. It doesn't make its way into the cloud. That's important. And then basically with that data imported, we have a runtime where people can build applications that operate on this data without having to send it out. Basically, we're bringing the algorithms that want to find out something about you to the user. Mm. And then they can just bring the conclusion back, but not all your raw data. So, for example, some targeting algorithm doesn't really need to know where we are every day. Mm. If you look at the location data that Google has about you, if you request a GDPR export, they always know where you are, pretty much. Mm. But what they actually do with that data, by and large, they wouldn't need to know all that. They wouldn't have to have all these details about your personal life because they're probably just interested in what kind of shoes you want to buy right now. (laughs) They can find out based on all this raw data, but they don't need to have it. And that's something that we're trying to reverse. You having sort of a local copy of the data, how does that protect the user? How does you having a copy of that data separate you from LinkedIn, Facebook and the rest? First of all, you know what's going on and you can request changes, right? Mm. The EU under GDPR and there's also this CC something in California and there's a lot of laws that basically allow you to tell companies what to keep about you and what to delete. If you really have the full insight, you can just push a button and tell them, you know what? Don't keep that. I don't want you to keep that. Oh, I see. That gives you some control back. But overall, we're hoping for building something like the magnitude of the web, where actually 
a company like Google wouldn't have to keep your data anymore in the first place. They would just collect it into the platform and then they can run their algorithms on top of it, but they don't have to keep it. And that's actually for many companies, at least kind of interesting because then they don't have to worry about data breaches and this sort of thing mm. anymore because they don't have your data. They don't have to safe keep it. Mm. Well, I suppose that's the same sort of thing as when we're building apps these days. Unless you absolutely have to, the best practice is to not handle any of the payment information and deal with a payment gateway that's going to do that. Allow someone else to control all the authentication because it changes all the time, all of those protocols. So ideally, don't handle anyone's data. And I suppose this allows you to do a similar sort of thing for data mining or data analytics, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, a lot of products are built off of data and it would be hard to figure out what people actually want to do what sort of products they need, how the products need to evolve without knowing anything about what they use them for and what they're missing in them. Mm. It's ultimately the same thing. I guess there are a few companies that kind of like having all that data because it gives them a monopolistic position. <laughs> but by <laughs> and large, most of the companies we talk to that fund our operations, they pretty much just want something like this to exist because it would remove a lot of their headaches. Right now, they have to go to Google and Facebook if they want to do some stuff. Mm. In the future, they could do it via our platform. For them, it doesn't matter much, but it does reduce their liability that they don't have to keep any raw copies of any sort of data. You seem to be one of the first organizations doing something useful with the GDPR ruling there as well. Being able to make a request to have your data removed, that's not an easy thing to do necessarily as an individual. No, no. Sometimes you have to write an email and wait two weeks, and then you get some zip file back, and then you have to tell them what files you don't like. And... <laughs> That's sort of part of the process of what we want to make a little bit easier. We're not fully there yet, to be honest. Like we mm. don't have a, like a one-click solution for this yet. But I think a few months from now, there is a couple of other companies in this space though. But I think nothing exactly comparable to like our fully local decentralized approach. So where did that idea come from? Was that an idea that you guys had discussed when you were building Adblock? Actually, at I.O., we thought about building something similar a couple of years back, but we did drop the project. Like, it seemed a bit too risky, which it is. <laughs> it's kind of stupid luck if it works out and if it gets adopted, because it is, like, of the magnitude of trying to build the web. I don't envy you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds like a great project, but, yeah, a massive undertaking. Yeah, so I did think this entire system through once three years ago. Last year, when I decided to leave I.O., I actually wanted to take a little break in between because I never had a sabbatical or something mm. and working or doing stuff that looks like working since <laughs> I was a child, pretty much. I actually wanted to take like half a year off or something. But then I met Thorsten, the CEO. And yeah, like, I was really intrigued by working with this guy, but also on the idea that I had mm. already explored a bit in the past. How big is the company now? Have you started to scale up? A little bit, yeah. We have 20-something yeah. people. I never have these headcounts straight. We don't have HR yet, so nobody does. <laughs> the development team, we had three people when I joined, and now we have eight. It's doubling the team. It's a lot of work after all. Like, yeah, yes, you're on the way. So, I mean, let's go back a little bit to the IO stuff then. So, Adblock was the main product out of IO? Yeah, pretty much. Vladimir Palant was the original author of Adblock Plus. Mm. The Adblock people know came after Adblock Plus. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> he started that in 2006, and then in 2011, he joined forces with a guy called Tim Schumacher. He's a German investor. Mm -hmm. And they basically wanted to take all this to the next level to have the resources to be prepared for litigation, which happened. We had all the major media companies in Germany, at least, suing us. Oh, wow. We had like seven, eight lawsuits going at any point in time. You need a lot of resources to fend off that sort of stuff. We had legal costs that I think eclipsed our personnel costs. <laughs> that was one of the reasons, I think, for founding the company. But also, he didn't want to be fully destructive. So he wanted to find a way to do ad blocking in a way that is just not entirely destructive for everybody who wants to run ads. And that's why they came up with this acceptable ads program. Mm. We also partnered with a thing called Flatter and later acquired it. That's a micropayment platform. I'm not sure you know that. No, no, I'm not familiar with that actually. Flatter, it's called. One of the founders of that was actually one of the founders of the Pirate Bay, Peter Zunde, mm. cool guy. Is that a product that's still in use? Yeah, sort of doesn't have massive resources at the moment, but it has a small team that's working on it still. I think it's incredible with the Adblock Plus side of things, though. Having to fend off all of those legal challenges whilst building a company must be incredibly difficult. Did that ever seep into engineering? Was it ever something that was a concern for you guys, or were you just aware that it was a thing happening in the background? Oh, it seeps into everything. Yeah. I think when you are in this level of attack, you really need to cross your T's and dot your I's. Mm. We had to make sure that our council understands everything we do in the product, how everything works. And some technical implementations we stayed away from because there might be some legal angle to attack that in some weird way. Wow. Quite the overhead. I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, you have to think about how that affects the engineering. 
So is there any sort of security type insights that you can share of where is the threshold? Where is the line that you're not supposed to cross? <laughs> oh, it's a very detailed question. For example, we always stayed away from injecting any sort of source code into pages because then we might get into trouble with violating their copyright. So we mm. always stuck to the mechanisms the browsers gave us. And browsers gave extensions less and less power over the years. So that was a struggle too. But I think my main piece of advice is to build a product where you don't have to constantly fight with someone. I mean, we know <laughs> what we were getting into, but it's expected overhead. Like we were constantly fighting with websites, trying to get past the ad blockers, mm. websites suing us and these sort of things. It was a very interesting time, but I probably prefer building something overall useful that doesn't get sued that much. <laughs> well, I mean, it's such a beneficial product for people. But obviously, you are going to come up against a huge amount of opposition from those websites and people who are actually trying to make money off their content. But I hate ads, so I'm all with you. You were one of the founders of that company, right? No, no. I joined with the first batch of employees in 2012, and then I was lead developer, whatever that means. <laughs> Vladimir Palan, the previous CTO and one of the founders. Oh, he was the founder, right, sure. Yeah, he delegated a lot of managerial things to me, so I guess that's why I had that title. And then... Three years later, in 2014, was it? He basically asked me if I'd like to take over as CTO. And that wasn't really my life plan. I thought I'll do that sort of job when I'm 40 or 50. So you took over when there were seven people? No, I joined when there were seven people in the company. In the company, right. When I took over, we were about 30 people with something like 10 or 12 in development, I think. That's quite a challenge, I suppose, to be 26 and become CTO of a company that's that well known as well with so few people in it and then growing it to the size of 250. How did you approach that? Like you said, that's not part of your life plan. What was the first thing you did as a CTO? First thing, announce it, I guess. <laughs> that seems like a good first step, actually, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but everybody was a little bit like, ah, okay, finally they did it, because I guess I did the job de facto a little bit longer than I had the title for. Hmm. So there wasn't a huge outcry in the organization. I think the first thing I did was to actually establish a bit of a closer line with the business half of the company that was previously a bit separate. Like we had a one group developing the product, one group doing random business stuff. Nobody knows. <laughs> we pulled that together. I think I started a weekly Zunk or something with the CEO. So we started to work more as a team than uh, mm. next to each other. That was important. But this heritage of like having two different organizations, one tech organization or tech slash product and one business organization, that sort of stayed. So when you do that sort of thing in the first one or two years, apparently it stays. But overall, I just did what seemed right. I had no idea what I'm doing <laughs> from knowing what not to do. I have a better idea of what I'm doing, but I don't think I was very systematic about any of it. I just did what seemed right. A lot of that came from instinct then. Were there any other sources that you were reaching out to or anything you were going to to try and figure out how you solved particular challenges? Because obviously you've come from an engineering background anyway, where you're constantly solving challenges. But when you're taking on a more managerial leadership role, where were you going to to try and figure out how to do certain things? I copied stuff, not <laughs> verbatim. I try to think about them and just bring these ideas into the organization. But I did get a lot of inspiration from early GitHub. They did a lot of blog posts in the early days about how they built a remote organization. And they also had this open source heavy background. Mm. Similarly to that Mozilla, the current Mozilla, but the early Mozilla was also a big source for inspiration. And we literally copied a lot of their processes because why not? <laughs> yeah, You can think about something from scratch and build up from scratch, or you can take some other starting point and make it your own from there. I think that's an interesting thing to get into because obviously we're talking about your role in these organizations you've got a bit of an advantage over the rest of the world in the sense that you've been working predominantly remote for over a decade. That's about right, isn't it? Not quite. So previously <laughs> I was at a company where I had a commute of like one and a half hours, which I enjoyed. I did a lot of good open source contributions on the train, <laughs> but I did fight for being able to work one day per week from home because I was very fascinated by remote working. I'd also studied remotely at the Open University in, in your country. <laughs> I was very excited back then about the idea of remote working, and that wasn't really a thing a lot of people do. GitHub was probably one of the most prominent remote organizations back then. So I was able to work one day per week at my previous company. And what usually happened is that I had to take work to home, finish it, and come back. Like there was a complete disconnect. There was nothing like Slack or something, no IRC, nothing, no mm. means to chat with people. Not even a real means to access my emails, I think, from home. And somebody <laughs> had a question, they literally called me on the phone. That was a bit weird. I had to really take a work package, then finish it on Fridays, but I liked that. 
when I was looking for my next company, I wanted to be able to work remotely, at least most of the time. Mm. That was fine with IO. Vladimir was also always working from home, mm -hmm. rarely seen in the office. So yeah, we figured we would just build things that way. And we also figured that since there's not a lot of remote companies around, that could actually be a shortcut to getting talent because a lot of good engineers want to work for Google and all these places, but they require them to relocate. All of those big tech firms, Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc., are relocating people all around the globe, mostly taking them to Silicon Valley or Seattle, I suppose. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who don't want to do that, mm. me included. <laughs> I think I was in conversation with Facebook at one point. I was interested actually in their London office. All right. I never really liked Facebook, so it was a development tooling team, so I wouldn't have to get in touch with the product, but... Still, it was kind of interesting, but I think only a role outside London was an option in Silicon Valley. And that sounds fun and all, but anyway, it could be maybe our competitive advantage to getting good engineers to offer an environment where they can work when they want, where they want. And it did. We got a lot of great people in early on. It sounds like it, and I suppose that is a distinct advantage over the rest of the world who's only been going through it for the last 12 months with COVID and all of the rest. How far flung were your developers? What parts of the world were they working from? In the beginning, we had a guy in Russia. Mm -hmm. Everybody else was in Europe. But then soon we started to hire some people from the US. But I would say probably 80% or 70% around Europe mm. and about 30% in Asia, the US. We even finally hired a guy in Hawaii who has a 12-hour distance <laughs> to us. So it's very hard to really have a lot of synchronous time. He accommodated a little bit, but we generally try to keep the need for synchronous time down. So I suppose that's where that inspiration from... GitHub and, you know, the open source communities, Mozilla, you mentioned before as well. I guess that's where some of that inspiration comes from for how do you actually get remote working to work effectively, take on some of those open source ways of working. Yeah, pretty much. I don't keep a super close eye on what everybody else is doing. Mm. But I think from what I've seen, a lot of companies approach remote by trying to use technology to replace the fact that they're not in the office. There's even like telecommuter robots you can control where a guy can like drive around the office and we can see them. It's an interesting idea if you really need that. But I think if you try to emulate this whole office environment, mm. audio and video calls are quite far from perfect. And they have different psychological texts as well. For example, if I'm in a day full of video calls, I'm personally very tired afterwards. Oh, yeah. Zoom fatigue is a thing. If I'm in a nice office all day, we go for lunch together, I'm energized by the same meeting that tires me when it's remotely. So I think mm. you can only get this far to the ideal of working in the office when trying to emulate it with video and audio tools, but otherwise trying to not change your ways. So I did look a lot at how the communities I grew up in do it. Maybe when I was in Counter-Strike clan or something, we would hear each <laughs> other by our voice. But that's it. It's a whole different way of getting to know people and working with people. I try to pull some inspiration from that, I guess. That's really interesting that it goes back as far as gaming then. So with things like Counter-Strike, and then you mentioned as well doing some open source contributions. Mm -hmm. I suppose you do develop friendships and ways of working with people, not based on visuals, not based on having ever seen or ever met or, or interacted with the person in a usual fashion. It's probably less common today than it was back then. The early internet was full of people being anonymous and just communicating via text. It changed quite a lot. Mm. But I still think there's communities that do brilliant work with very rarely meeting each other. I mean, bigger open source projects tend to have one or two conferences per year where they can bond with people. I think that's important. But they manage to get a lot of stuff done without having a daily stand-up, these sort of things that I think a lot of people try to bring into an emulated office environment when having a remote team. No, I think that's really interesting. Back in sort of 2012, I was working at Amazon and we implemented a follow-the-sun type model. Mostly for launches, we had an office in London, which was set up like a war room with lots of different representatives from the teams that were required in that office. And then we would hand over to Seattle. They would hand that over to India and then India would hand it back to us. And we were able to develop a follow the sun model where we needed it. Did you ever try that or did you immediately skip to this sort of open source type model? We just started with that. I think that was really our main way of attracting talent in the beginning. Mm. It was like working on an open source product, but getting paid for it. You could have all that same way of working that you would normally do for free out of passion, mm. but you also got a salary for it. So I think that's what <laughs> got us a lot of good people in the beginning. So that's sort of how we started out. It was just something that I kind of defended a little bit so we can keep working that way because I could tell it works and I could tell it gives us very good people. Did you have like an annual thing where everybody would get together or anything like that? We did, yeah. Every year we had a summer event, basically. Mm. 
There we flew in everybody who wants to come. In the beginning, later it became mandatory. Things became a bit more corporate. So we had a lot of <laughs> mandatory meetings. But in the beginning, the logic was more like, if nobody comes to these things, it's probably not good. We can make it better and then people come to them. Yeah. Because they wanted to see each other once per year. And that was okay. And it was sort of exciting to travel for two, three days from the other side of the world. But then we went back into our basements, <laughs> to our keyboards. I think that's a really good point as well, that if people don't want to come to a meeting, it's probably not a good meeting. I think more people should probably be aware of that, actually, in their organizations when they're thinking about how their meetings are set up. And in fact, I'm going to use that today. I'm going to take that back after this call and use it and implement it in my current organization, I think. I don't think it can always be implemented, to be honest. I think it works if every participant is kind of optional. Let's say you have four developers working on a code base and they want to make some technical decision. Two guys don't feel like showing up. Then the two people actually in the meeting get to make the technical decision and implement it. Mm. But let's say you have two managers who don't know anything about the code base and two developers. The developers don't show up. They can't do anything because they don't work on the product. They work on the people working on the product. And that's, I mm. think, something that's actually worth avoiding. But I think that's also something that happened at IO. We had more and more people who had kind of no idea what was going on. <laughs> and they relied on what people told them, like, here's the progress, this is what we're going to do next, this is done. They couldn't tell and they couldn't jump in. And this is something where I always try to stay in a position where I can jump in and do some work nobody else wants to do for some reason or can do, usually wants to. <laughs> but I think that's really important is having that ability to dive deep. And as soon as you end up with that managerial layer, that can cause more problems, I think. Yeah, I think I even noticed it a bit of myself, not in the beginning, because I was still working alongside the teams and everything. But then what I would do is I would move on to usually new products, build a little team around that, leave the old stuff behind with the old people. Mm. But then you are still in conversation with shareholders and other managers, and they ask you, can we do something like this? How long would that take? So you kind of still feel like you need to understand and control what these guys are doing back on the thing you previously worked on. And they don't always understand, I need to check as an answer. <laughs> Even when you don't work on something that much, but you talk about it a lot, which is what a lot of managers do, I think they talk about things, they don't work on them. Mm. Everything seems a bit simpler when you're not actually exposed to the overall complexity of the thing. You feel like, why isn't this done yet? Why don't we do just this? Why don't we make it simple? Why has this taken two weeks to figure out how to move forward here? So you have these thoughts and I sort of had to fight them, but I think it's a strong push in executives to oversimplify the work that's actually happening down there on the ground floor and to become frustrated by it or feel powerless. If all you can do is call a meeting and tell people you're not happy that this isn't done yet, then you are very powerless as a manager and you have shareholders and other people who want stuff from you and you can't give it to them. Since I was always in there, I could always say like, yeah, we can do that because I knew I could sit down and do it myself. But that's not true, I think, for a lot of managers that focus purely on the working on people side. So I really try to mix that. But it's hard in such a growing, big organization, actually. We do get asked these questions all the time in sort of those senior meetings. And depending on how close you are to the code base, some questions are particularly complex. So we'd have to dive into that in a bit more detail. It probably takes some figuring out, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just wondering if you have any sort of framework that you use to try and reflect that back to senior people. Not so much, I think. I try not to say when things are done and exactly how they are going to be. I try to manage expectations and say that I can only give projections. Right now, I think this thing with this scope is going to be done by this time. But there is, of course, a lot of common techniques for dealing with this. For example, if you really care about that date, then you can always time box it, right? You can say, okay, we're going to work on the important stuff. Whatever we get done is going to have to be good enough to be released in June because we're going to release in June no matter what. And then you just need to reduce scope, make sure the important items get tackled first. The other way around is to say, you know what, we're going to release when these things are done. Mm. That's the other way around. At Poly Poly, we're going pretty heavily right now for the time boxing approach. So we're saying, this is the next feature I want to work on. We would like to have that done in two months, mainly because we need to keep a pipeline that keeps investors interested. Mm. That's why we usually cut a lot of scope because either you have <laughs> something where you don't know what it is at a certain date or... You have something where you know exactly what it is at an undefined date. When it comes to things like estimating and you're trying to work on those dates of when things are going to come out, is there something you need to do that's slightly different within the organization to figure out how you actually estimate stuff? Because obviously you talk about cutting scope and you can certainly use that as a mechanism, but is estimation important for you in the way that you work? It is in general. I guess one framework that I should mention that's very important to me is a thing called Kneffen. Okay. From a guy called Edward Snowden. No, wait, it's Dave Snowden. Yeah, I was going to say I didn't think it was Edward Snowden. <laughs> Everybody else mixes that up. Poor guy is called Dave Snowden. 
<laughs> he probably gets mixed up with the other Snowden quite a bit. He's much <laughs> older and he does research in the field of complexity theory. And he developed a model called the Conefin framework for making sense of problems and situations. And that's a very useful one. He has like six minute videos on this that could explain it much better than I could in half an hour, I think. But in general, it classifies <laughs> problems and approaches to solving them. So there's like obvious problems where everybody knows what to do immediately. There's one perfect way to do it. Then there's complicated problems that are kind of similar to the obvious problems, except not everybody can solve them. Mm -hmm. So let's say an obvious problem is I need to turn the light on. I'm going to stand up and hit that light switch. There's nothing else I can do. Maybe I can build a stick or something if I have the materials here, but there's really one good way to turn on the light in this room. I have to mm. get up and click the light switch, right? You don't need an expert to do that. Anybody can do it. So a complicated problem is probably more like building a house. If I think about it, it's been done a lot of times and there are a lot, a lot of unknowns. So you can generally say, we need to buy these sort of materials. We need to do these calculations. From these calculations, we can tell how much we need of which type of material. We can tell how many people we need for what time. You can really plan the whole thing, right? And then you can say, okay, this house is going to cost so much. It's going to be done in this time. Of course, planning isn't perfect. So sometimes that's off a bit, particularly with this example, I think. It's going to be a bit more expensive than you thought. But that's also partly because you changed your requirements along the way, right? That's what a lot of these mm. processes like Scrum are made for. The guy who wants the house is not going to have fully made up his mind usually about everything before the work starts. At some point, they're going to be in there and then they're like, you know what? I also want the light switch here. You know what? I want a second faucet in the kitchen. <laughs> so that's why it's hard to plan for this guy. And that's where I think these iterative close to the customer approaches like Scrum really make a lot of sense if you have this sort of project. So you regularly touch base with the customer and make sure they understand whether there were any unforeseen problems, whether they like the result, want it changed. You focus less on planning everything beforehand and you just take it as you go. Mm. I think Scrum is a very useful methodology for this, but there's also the complex work, which is more something like, let's say you have an app and you want more users for the app. That's a complex problem because mm. you can hire whatever experts you like, but all these experts can do is really just try stuff and see what works. That makes the problem complex in nature. So for example, if you don't have a website, you can build a website, try to get some web traffic, some search engine traffic. If you want more search engine traffic, you can try to play around with some SEO methods, but none of that is really definitely going to work. In the end of the day, you might have very low retention. So a lot of people actually installing the thing, very few people keeping it. Those are things that are very hard to predict. You can't make a plan, like you can make a plan for building a fully specced out house. And that's where I think a lot of these methodologies fall apart a little bit. And that's where I think the most interesting work to do in-house actually is in that complex space. If you know exactly what sort of thing you want, might as well find the cheapest person to build it according to plan. Mm. But if you have no idea what you want, if you just want to move some number, we want more users, we want more revenue. For those questions, I think that's what you really want to have internal staff for. And then the key is to actually use all of their brains and not present them with a plan or with tickets they're going to do in a certain need order. You need them to figure out for you what should be done. So how do you go about applying that in an organization? Is that something you're doing at the moment or something you did in the past with IO? I did, yeah. In general, I think what I didn't do at IO, what I did very aggressively this time around is that I was talking to a lot of the managers to make sure we have the same view on what sort of organization we want to have. I mean, you can easily have a company where you have the CEO, he's going to figure out what product to build mm -hmm. and everybody else is just executing that. You see that in a lot of startups and it can work, but then you only have one guy thinking about the complex side of things. How do we build a product that has this amount of users, makes this amount of revenue, ultimately makes the company profitable? Everybody else is not thinking about what the company should be doing, but just how to execute it. So if this guy is wrong, it's a very costly experiment. But I think we mm. see that a lot with startups, right? They get a lot of funding. A guy has an idea, tries that idea, fails. There was a company that was capable of executing one experiment. But <laughs> I think a better way is to make these sort of trials safer, to not power all of the money of the company into one specific idea by one guy, but to try multiple things. And whatever works, you can just do more of that pretty much. So that's really enabling experimentation. Yeah. But to go back to methodologies, to my knowledge, there aren't really any very good by the book methodologies you can follow for this sort of complex work, because mm. I think in general, methodologies are not really useful for being used at scale 
I think they are usually meant for like a scaffold. Like when you're building a house again. Sorry, yeah. there's a construction site here. I can't think of anything but houses <laughs> now. I see this thing and I'm like... Oh, it works for me. I've got builders working on my house as well today. So Okay, yeah. It's, it's better than cars anyway. Yeah, when you're building a house, you need a scaffold to help build it. But you can remove that scaffold when the house is done, when the walls are standing, when nobody needs to paint anything up there anymore. And I think mm. a lot of these agile methodologies are actually useful in that same way, right? So let's say you have... People who never talk to each other, who just do their own thing. When they get stuck, they sit there for a week, cry, try again, eventually solve it maybe on their own. But having something like a daily stand-up in a retrospective can change their behavior, right? It can train them to actually tell their teammates, I'm stuck here, I need help. Or mm. I don't know what next to work on that's actually important. So I think these processes are a good way for establishing that behavior. But I think when you have it, you can remove that scaffold, right? There's no need to wait for... 24 hours to tell somebody I'm stuck. I can just write to them right now and say, I'm stuck, can you help? Yeah, I think being able to train in that sort of behavior of flagging blockers and issues, you know, that's probably the most important thing. Yeah, so I think there's probably way too much focus with agile coaches and senior management that doesn't really understand software development very much on these symptoms of successful teams, right? <laughs> they're like, oh, I know successful teams talk daily, so we're going to talk daily, so they're going to be a successful team too. Mm. Not necessarily. I think it comes down to watching what sort of behavior you think you need to see in the team, and then you can try things to establish that behavior. Because I do think that management is complex work. Nothing ever works the same way for different people. People are quite complex, oh, yeah. right? So if you move a random group of people into a room, the right process for them is not going to be the right process for any other permutation of people in the same organization or for any other group of people. Well, I think that's probably why it's a framework. Yeah. It's a scaffold, as you say. You know, let's stick with the analogy. You have to treat it like a toolbox and you have to select the right tool for the job. Yeah, and most of the methodologies do have mechanisms built in for actually modifying the process to suit the team's mm. needs better. Right? It's not illegal to do no stand-ups at all. I didn't read any books or something, but at least that's how I was taught. <laughs> well, it's interesting, actually, because we spoke to Nigel Baker, who's a Scrum trainer, and one of the original people to use Scrum, I suppose, one of the early adopters of Scrum. He specifically said to us, you know, it's just a suggestion. The Scrum framework is actually very, very small. Hmm. You know, we've talked about the simple problems and the complicated problems. I think having more of a framework for the complicated problems makes sense. But where it's really complex, and I'm not just talking the people complexity, I'm talking like the engineering complexity. How do you set an organization up to handle complex problems? And how do you also get people to work in that environment? There must be a certain amount of unlearning that teams need to do or developers, people need to do to be able to function well in that complex environment. I think so, yeah. It's not everybody's thing and that's perfect. But even if you work in a complex environment, you still need to execute experiments, right? So even if it's not the CEO who has the idea for the app, the whole organization is now going to build. Maybe it's a team and maybe they want to build a quick click dummy and try it with some people in a restaurant. That's a more safe version of the same experiment. But they still need people to help build this. So there's still a lot of complicated work that has to be done or outsourced by these teams working on the complexity problems. You don't just get to say, this is what I want to try. And then you don't have to do the work to actually set up and execute the experiment. So that's why I think mixing and matching personalities works quite well for this. If you want a team to take more ownership and care more about the high-level problems, I think there's probably two things I try to do. One is to communicate the big picture well. Mm. How big is the sandbox that you can play in? Are we okay <laughs> with doing illegal stuff? Probably not. So you need to reduce the sandbox a little bit to make sure everything we do is actually legal. That's one of the guardrails we run our experiments in. But maybe also we want to pursue a certain vision like we do at Poly Poly. We're not going to build, mm. I don't know, a note-taking app. That'd be weird. It would be very off our mission. Off brand. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's plenty of note-taking apps out there. <laughs> yeah, I guess it doesn't mean you can't build a better one, but it's probably not the right stuff to try for Poly Poly because we have a specific mission. We want to mm. do things that pursue that mission. So that sort of sets the high-level framing, I think, for the team to experiment in. Mm. That's one thing, I think, to make sure there's big picture and this direction and these guardrails are well understood. And then the other thing is, I think you need to quite often encourage people to actually have ideas. There are some people who come from an environment where whatever ideas are run by them, they're going to be like, yes, boss, and interpret this as an order because they're used to it. And I think it's perfectly fine if you just want to work in a job and you don't want to be awake at night thinking about what else the company could try. If you're just like, tell me what to build. I think that's a perfectly valid attitude towards software development. So I think if you have only those people, it's very hard to run a complex team. Mm. 
because they're going to be reluctant to suggest experiments because that's not really what they want to do. They want to build stuff and take pride in this. So they are more interested in doing the more complicated work. Then I think rather than trying to change people, which I think is not something any manager can do, I think that would be weird to assume I can turn this guy into that. No, he is whatever he wants to be and he's going to become whatever he wants to become ultimately or she. So when you're hiring and you're intending to find people that are able to solve these complex problems, how do you go about doing that? Are there any particular things you look to do within your hiring process to make sure that you're able to find the right sort of people? Like I said, I try to mix personalities. If I have nobody who enjoys executing somebody else's idea, that's bad, right? Mm. If I only have people who enjoy executing somebody else's idea, that's also bad. The first setup, I guess I would fall back to being the execution person. And then the second setup, I would fall back to being the idea person. Then there's just not a lot of brains on these problems, respectively. So I do try to look at the set of people I have, how they work together, and then think about what sort of drive or personality or skills are missing. And then we hire for these. And I think hiring for skills is relatively easy compared to personalities, but there are some things that I do during interviews in a kind of sneaky fashion to see how somebody disagrees. So for example, I interviewed for a couple of senior technical leadership roles at the previous place, like one and a half years ago. In most interviews, I actually suggested something stupid. I did some pairing with them on code, not to see how good they are at writing code, because they wouldn't be their daily job primarily, mm -hmm. but basically to see what they're like. Are they able to follow do they like to follow? What if I send them in a stupid direction? What if I suggest to make a change to the code that doesn't make a lot of sense at all? What if I basically say very little at all and just reiterate the problem? Can they lead? Mm. So I think in a good setup, people need to both be able to follow and lead. That's sort of what you need in a team. Not one leader, everybody else following, but it needs to be more of a dance, I think. So how do you judge success in those scenarios? I mean, how often were you finding people would call you out on your stupid direction or gently try to lead you back to the right direction or just go on regardless? <laughs> Pretty much everybody gently pointed it out, but I think maybe there were one or two cases where they didn't, but there you could also write this off as just being a bit nervous in an interview and not wanting to do the wrong thing. I think people probably lose half their brain capacity in a live coding interview. Oh, it's hard work, isn't it, in a live coding interview? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. you're not just concerned with the code, but you're concerned with a lot of things at the same time. Your brain is kind of running hot. I think this particular technique hasn't exposed so many bad eggs yet, but I was also fortunate to work with pretty good recruiters. Mm. At least in most cases, I could tell them what sort of person I'm looking for, and they would actually find that sort of people. In the beginning, I probably rejected more than 90% of the candidates, but now in the recent hiring round, working with my favorite recruiter, I probably reject 10%. I think it's much better if you can find a good recruiter that you can work with who's able to take on the feedback and know the sort of person you're looking for. That makes a big difference, I think. Yeah. So you'd have to talk to him about how he judges the personalities because he did the actual filtering there. When he brought them to me, the personality I was looking for was usually spot on. It's not just the personality, I suppose. It's good to have that interaction of knowing how people are going to behave with one another. But when there isn't really an in-office culture in your scenario, where you don't really have an in-office quite so much, <laughs> most people are remote most of the time, how do you build a culture in an organization and how do you hire and find the right people for that when there isn't an in-office? Actually, we started out at IO doing coding puzzles. That was a bad idea, I think, because there are some people who just know these by heart. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, we copied and there we noticed, okay, this part we copied isn't actually working for us. Might work for Google to do whiteboard version of binary trees, but for us, it was more like either the person already knows how to do this or not. Well, those are things you can study, aren't they? Everybody knows that you're going to be asked to traverse a tree in a coding interview. Yeah, so that didn't work so well. So then we moved on to, you know what, let's just hire people who can show us existing code. That didn't scale so well, to be honest, because a lot of people just don't have that. And it's fine not to have that. Not everybody has that sort of time. And then we started to do case studies, so little projects that are trying to be respectful of people's time, but where they implement something. But with the second stage, when people do have open source projects or contributions, you can just see how they communicate in written form, how they document, how they treat people who make pull requests to their products, for example. Mm. There's a lot of insight in just reading what they do, and that's actually very powerful about a remote organization. An in-office organization, you couldn't run around all the time and understand how everybody talks to everybody else and what sort of work they finished when. But actually, when you do work on a source code repository with an issue tracker, with pull requests, when the yearly review comes around, you can see like, okay, how's 
this guy doing code reviews. I can just check. Mm. There's a lot of these records that are interesting for managers that actually understand what's going on that they can go into for pointers for improvement and these sort of things and to see what people's strengths are. How do you deal with the time zone issue, with the feedback loops? Is that something that affects you or not? Do you just cater for it by expecting that there's going to be a longer feedback loop from someone who's working further away on a different time zone to yourself? It's a huge problem. I can probably go back quickly to the whole Geneffen framework idea of complexity. So I did say that managing is a complex activity, right? Mm. It would be nice if it was complicated because then you could just read a book <laughs> or hire an expert and you could do it right. If somebody built 100 houses, building another house is not a big deal. But if somebody built 100 teams, the new one might still teach them something new because people in combinations are different. So I think it also comes down to watching what happens. And you can understand that from retrospectives, by looking at the lead time of tickets, any sort of measures you can look at to see, okay, how fast is work being done? How good is work being done? And then you have some things that the team can try to improve this. So I think when you have a team that's highly asynchronous, but you have processes that require a lot of synchronicity. Code reviews are a good example, I think. That's a synchronization point for work, right? Somebody works on a piece of code, somebody else needs to review it, bam. They need to synchronize on this. Mm -hmm. They need to both have a conversation, which can take a long time asynchronously until this work can proceed. So if the quality of the work is generally okay, I think you can relax this and say, let's only pre-commit code reviews at least for certain areas where this is not a problem or where you would hurt quality by doing that. So I think you can just update your practices a bit to reduce these synchronization points and then people can work more on their own and it's less painful because if people do have a lot of these synchronization points, what I've seen is that they take on a ton of work in parallel. Mm. I'm going to work on something. Okay, this is blocked. This guy's on vacation. He's going to review it three weeks from now. I'm going to start another thing. Also blocked. I'm going to start another thing. And then it's kind of hard to be focused. When one of these things is actually truly important, the organization can't really facilitate that, I think. Yeah. The organization is going to move everything forward in a sort of random, parallel manner. So I think it's very important to have agreed upon focus areas and to be creative when something's stuck. Despite being globally distributed, do you have to have teams that are kind of still semi-co-located around a time zone? Or do you just deal with having these touch points, as you mentioned, understanding that every now and again, you're going to have to do a synchronization for a pre-commit code review or something along those lines? Similarly to with remote working in the first place, there are some advantages to having people in different time zones. For example, we had an issue once with Adblock Plus for iOS. Apple literally moved the release date of their next Safari version up by, I think, two weeks, and we weren't ready. Mm. So we literally had to work through the night, but we didn't all have to work through the night because we did have that Hawaii person on their particular team. Right. Yeah. I could drop it at 11. He could work through the night with another person also working at that hour. In the morning, I could catch back up. So we had this incidental follow the sun principle that didn't require a lot of coordination, like handover from one team mm. to another because it was one team to begin with. We knew how to work with each other. So that was cool. Do you actually structure your teams or does everybody kind of work on the same code base? Do people just pick up the things that they want to work on? Or do you have like a feature team or a product team type setup like you might see in a Spotify model or similar? Yeah, right now I'm keeping things loose. I did the same thing at IO in the beginning to kind of have the organization find its own ideal structure in a way. I think you can kind of overdo it a little bit when you have eight or 10 people. Mm. I think this also is a reaction to when you are missing something. So for example, if you feel like there's two areas that constantly need focus and constantly need work, I would definitely try to have two teams focus on each of these areas. For PolyPoly, Poly, for example, maybe one team that really focuses and works on the platform and another team that focuses on building applications for it on our own or working with partners to build applications for it. So those will be a natural thing. If you want to have not just one focus, but two, then I think it's a good idea to try to have two teams. Do you think there are any downsides to the flexibility or is it only upsides? Yeah, it probably sounds a bit more romantic than it is. I mean, we didn't have a <laughs> daily stand-up, but we do tend to post fairly regularly what we're up to, each of us. Mm. We do have a notion of priority and focus, and I do think that's very important. At IO, we had this thing happen where the organization got to a state where they could do a little bit of everything, mm. but when something really needed to get done, it was very hard. Like you had to kind of break the way of working to really get it done. I think the more strict product organizations are more powerful at this because you can say, okay, this team has this priority. Now we change this team's priority to that and everybody's going to roll with it. I think you probably want a healthy mixture of this. So you do want to have this sort of understanding of here are some people or at least one person responsible for a certain area. And when something important needs to happen here, we need to be able to do that. 
But yeah, I do think a lot of this like overstructuring organizations also comes from inexperience in a way. I mean, I was, mm. I probably still am sort of inexperienced, but I erred towards underspecifying. I kind of say progress over process. There's also people who err in the other way and they're like, just in case, I don't know what to do. So I'm going to write another process. And maybe that's a, also a valid way of doing things. It's not my way, but I think then you end up with these organizations where everything seems thought through and there is less of a controlled chaos. And I think the major downside from my way of doing things is that a lot of managers don't understand it. It's very foreign to them. They think it's just a big old chaos. At Iowa, was pretty bad at this. It was very tedious to kind of get people to understand how things work and why. And that was a lot of overhead. But I think at Poly Poly, I kind of try to set the stage there a lot earlier and like show what system there is. Yeah, yeah. And like also flexible about the lack of systematic approaches where other people feel they're needed, need to take that serious and talk about it. I think it would be fascinating to have some sort of velocity comparison between an organization that's as destructured as yours versus one that's a little bit more structured. Because I think if we go to the extreme of like a heavily process-driven organization, I've not seen a heavily process-driven organization deliver much in terms of output. And I'm sure there's listeners that will be able to give examples the other way. But I've found that hybrid agile structure in between where you've got a little bit of framework, but you're allowing the teams to be very creative. You can get an awful lot of power and an awful lot of delivery out of that. You can deliver a lot of product and of high quality. But I've never worked in this scenario where you've basically implemented an open source model within a private company. <laughs> I'm really curious on what the velocity would be like. It's fascinating. Yeah, I think, first of all, it's a wrong question to ask because who cares if we run very fast in the wrong direction, right? <laughs> well, there is that, absolutely. You already have these KPIs you're interested in, probably revenue or user base. So in that regard, the previous company did good. At least there was a lot of growth while we had this way of working. I wouldn't fully attribute it to it, but you couldn't say it doesn't work. Poly Poly doing less so. We're still in the stage where we are chasing funding, of course, to build this idea. But I think there is probably a huge tendency in companies that have a lot of revenue to have a less complex setup. They already have a way of making money. They just need to scale that up and do more of the same. I don't know, look at IBM. Mm. They do some innovation for sure, but a lot of their work is also just doing more of what they already do to earn more money. It's quite complicated. So I think the only real KPI for company's success should be revenue, I guess. It could also be the user base and the number of people impacted by them. But I think yeah. conversely, as companies get bigger, they actually have a lower need for this complex working because they have found a business model that they can scale. And then they die because they don't find the new one. <laughs> this is quite dangerous, but a lot of them live very long by just keeping on doing what they're doing. And you can't say it, they're unsuccessful. I've gone through quite a few digital transformations whereby the starting point was an organization was frustrated that the engineering team wasn't delivering the features and functionality that they wanted. And the goal in that scenario is to turn it the other way so the engineering team is going faster than the organization can think, which allows you to create those experiments. I like that. It allows you to get into the state that you guys seem to be permanently in, which is nice. But I think that's the goal, really, is trying to figure out how the organization can chase revenue or customers, as you've mentioned. Otherwise, I actually think they can be very structured at chasing the wrong goal. <laughs> it takes them a very, very long time to figure that out because the engineering team is going so slow, partly because of the process. I think the important thing that you've hit on is actually that we go in the right direction you then have to find a way of going in that potential right direction as fast as possible so that you can figure out whether you've made a wrong turn or not. But that's hard just to say. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think it's very hard to have like the engineering team outperform the sales marketing side of the company because having an idea about something or talking about it is a lot less effort than actually building it, making it scale and making it work. So I think you would have to have quite the staffing discrepancy for that to work. That was one of the things I kind of saw in Amazon, though, years and years ago. So we're talking like a decade ago. Mm. It was the one organization where rather than having marketing saying, can we build this because we need to do X, marketing would come around to the engineering team and kind of go, have you got anything I can market? <laughs> because Pretty much, yeah. You can see that in Amazon because that's how they function. Uh -huh. It's engineering led. And I think if you can get into that scenario, you're in a really positive world. Sounds like where you are. Now we're trying to get there. You need to have this head start, right? I mean, if you start a new company and you equally hire marketing and salespeople as you do product and tech people, 
the product and tech people are not going to have anything to show for <laughs> the first year or two, probably. Mm. Like there is nothing to market yet. So yeah, I think it's very important actually to grow these sides of the company in a smart way. And I think usually the marketing and sales side has probably grown a little bit too fast. Yeah. Probably takes on a little bit too much power in a way that they set the direction. And then you have a situation where they are like, oh, it would be cool if we did something like this. Then the product people have to kind of run after <laughs> these marketing ideas and they can't really deliver them on time. That leads to an organization, I think, where you are unhappy with things not being fast enough. And then you worry about velocity, right? Because you have all the right ideas. You just don't have people who built your right ideas fast enough. Well, I think that's exactly the point that you mentioned before when you said that you took over as CTO, age 26. Your first instinct was to get closer to the business side of the business. Exactly, because you need to do this expectation management. I think back then I wasn't very good at it. I think now I'm better at it. But I think that's probably one of the few things that you actually need some sort of CTO for. Other than that, we are probably just, I don't know, an extra engineer. But you do want to have this <laughs> connection and to have a good dance there. I want to just go back a little bit as well, because I'm curious. You mentioned earlier on about the whole, was it Counter-Strike? It was Counter-Strike, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Which came first for you, development or gaming? Uh, gaming, age six, development age 10, I think. Still very early on then. <laughs> yeah, I was good at neither back then, but it's when I started. <laughs> I was about 18 or so when I got my first programming job, and I never got somebody to pay me for playing games. <laughs> I'm still trying, but it doesn't work. Have you got a Twitch account that you're going to plug now? <laughs> I don't know, but now I got a streaming tool, so maybe I can use that <laughs> to become a game streamer. No, I don't actually have that much time or take that much time for video games these days, but... It was an interesting progression. When you play a game with other people in like a Counter-Strike clan, you are a team, but you're doing something that is evidently fun for everyone. The only purpose of a game is to have a nice experience, literally. So you have a nice experience. And of course, everybody's motivated to do their best in that setting and to win. Because it's something people regularly do not to get money for it. But when I transitioned to working on some, in some open source communities, now I suddenly did something for free that people usually get paid for. Mm. But there was the same sort of motivation dynamic, I think. Like if somebody cared about doing something, they did it. And if they didn't see the point in doing it, nobody would do it. So it's more important to make sure that people see why something is important and why we need to try something. And if nobody thinks it's important, you probably shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What was the first stuff that you were starting to build age 10 then? Because that's quite early to start building software. Actual software, I guess somewhere around 18. I think in my first job, I thought I could write code, but my mentor there disagreed, rightfully so, and made me read a couple of books first. Probably still have them here. He just gave them to me to take. The Mythical Man Month and the C programming language is what I still remember. <laughs> well, The Mythical Man Month is my favorite book, I think. Certainly my favorite coding book. It was definitely interesting. I didn't know why he made me read that. But then when we <laughs> got a little bit bigger, I kind of started to see the point. But yeah, I was 18. I didn't know. Like, I could probably write a few lines of code, but that's just a subset of software development, of course. And the rest I wasn't familiar with. So what were you writing age 10 then? I mostly built text adventures in Pascal. So like games you just play on the command line. It's kind of all I learned, how to read stuff from the command line and write back to it. So I use that as my toolbox to build some strategy games and stuff like this. Did you have friends playing that or was that just purely for your own amusement? Oh, my own amusement back then? I don't know. You didn't really have friends who also liked computers. At least <laughs> I didn't. I was the only one I knew. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I think I only had my cousin and he was better at programming than I was. I'm a happy hermit. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that seems to be the story, doesn't it? With all this remote working, but it's working out for you. Yeah. So you started working at 18 then. When did you study at the Open University? When I finished school, I actually thought about studying on-site, but I already had an apartment I wanted to keep, of course. So I figured maybe if I just do distance studies, I'm going to be able to work full-time and study full-time. I started at the Open University when I was like 20, I think. Originally, I wanted to study maths and computer science, but then I studied only computing because I figured... That's something I already know from my day job, and I can use more synergies to talk like a manager for a second, <laughs> than having to learn something that definitely fascinated me. But math beyond 101 was really something that took more of my spare time than learning a bit more about UML or something. And so the computing, has that helped you in your life since then? I think so. I took some interesting courses. Most of it was kind of redundant, but that was also a bit the point. So I would learn something in university, and I could immediately think about it in the context of actually already working in the industry and sometimes apply it. My favorite courses were the more computer to science-y ones, less the software engineering ones, because that was a bit redundant. Well, more algorithms and things like that, you mean? 
Yeah, exactly. I think that's where I leveled up the most, where I got really passionate to also getting good at algorithms, not just being able to whip up some software somehow, but to understand how to make it really good. And that's not just being beautiful. It also means being efficient. Personally, I think that is beautiful. <laughs> I think users do too. They just don't know it. I don't think everybody thinks it's beautiful if someone loads forever or takes a long time to process 10 notes. <laughs> I think that's probably the most useful thing from computer science, actually having that ability to write good algorithms. And you can see that in people when you interview them. I'm quite comfortable writing mediocre software in any language. And I think that's probably because of my computer science degree. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tell. It's hard. I don't know. I can't do an A-B test on this and not study. But I certainly don't regret it. Nobody ever cared about my degree, though. I don't look at people's degrees when I hire. I'm surprised. Oh, he studied computer science. What are the odds? <laughs> doesn't seem to matter that much. When I showed it to my boss back then, he was like, oh, cool. No, well, I think it's probably a good thing to not care. Once I've come up with an agreement with a recruiter about the type of person that I'm looking for, I actually don't like to read a CV going into an interview. I like to try and find out something about the person mm. as we go through the conversation. And I also like to just see how they think. So how people think is important. And it doesn't really matter what university they went to. People who have been to university or haven't been to university, they bring different things to the table. It's just a heuristic, I think. You can expect probably certain things. People are more likely to have certain skills and experiences if they did study, but that also goes for the rest of their CV, right? So yeah, absolutely. I uh, recently hired a developer who was in marketing beforehand. I figured, okay, this one is probably going to be a hard worker, probably is very good at reading into stuff and making sense of systems and this sort of thing. So these things matter just as much, I think, as studying, if not more. Oh, yeah, it gives you different context. And as a result, you'll end up with different ideas in the organization. And to your point before about using brains, I think that is the important thing, isn't it? The more that you can make effective use of brains, the more effective you're going to be. You talked about the open source projects that you contributed to during your commute. Are there any notable ones there that we've used your code on? <laughs> yeah, possibly if you use Firefox or Google Chrome, because I did contribute some patches to both of them. I don't know, that was something like 10 years ago, so I'm not sure the code is still there. <laughs> you helped on the journey. <laughs> yeah, I was always very fascinated by browsers. I first contributed a little bit to Firefox, and then when Chromium came up, I decided to get interested in that. Back then, I had to build like a whole setup for my little netbook to make UI changes in Google Chrome, for example, because just linking the binary took two hours in this netbook. Wow. That's like one thing that you can't interrupt. And if it's interrupted, you have to start it over again. At least back then, <laughs> that's how the build process worked. It was just linking everything statically into one binary. So that took forever. Other than that, I did start a few projects of my own. I quite like the language Clojure. When I got into that, also many years ago, I wrote a mustache parser. It's a template language. I remember mustache, yeah. It's pretty bad code that I wrote there, but it ended up being kind of popular. But I think there's better alternatives now that are better maintained because I didn't really find a way to get people to pay me for writing closure code. So yeah, it's a little bit abandoned. And the same goes for a plugin I had written for the Eclipse IDE, which probably everybody knows. Nobody wants to know. <laughs> I was in my early 20s, I think, and it didn't support any sort of color schemes. There's a Vim and then later Emacs user. I was really into this sort of nonsense stuff, like having a dark terminal and different syntax highlighting colors. That everybody uses these days. It's true. Back then, nobody cared. And I think they were right not to care. I think it really doesn't matter how beautiful like your syntax coloring looks like. Anyway, I wanted to have dark themes. They were easy on the eyes back then. So I built something called Eclipse Color Theme. Because the Eclipse IDE actually didn't support color themes back then at all. And it couldn't really, because every Eclipse editor had their own configuration for colors in their own XML file that you edit through their own settings. So you could actually go in there and change the syntax highlighting colors for every single plugin you use, like for your JavaScript plugin, for your C++ plugin, CDT it was called back then. All I did was sort of create a common format that would generate these preferences files for you or modify them for you. So you can have one color theme definition and then it overrides the respective keys and all these custom plugin configurations. That was a pretty stupid hack. For a few years, it was the most popular Eclipse <laughs> plugin. But yeah, wow. I guess that's my claim to fame. Well, that's great. That's a huge amount of contributions, I think, or a good handful, especially having the most popular Eclipse plugin. That's a good claim to fame, definitely. Yeah, I guess. But I also felt a bit bad about that because I stopped using Eclipse as soon as I could. <laughs> For a few years, I still maintained it halfway well, but running an open source project by yourself, like I did in that case, it takes a lot of ongoing time and effort. And if it's not scratching your own itch anymore, it's hard to find the motivation, at least for me, all the time. Right, absolutely. Well, anyway, I mean, thank you for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Any final words? What's next for you? 
I guess one thing I still have in my head, we talked about Agile a few times, and I do think it's interesting how when you say Agile, you mean probably the same thing as me. You mean a very flexible environment where you don't have set rules or anything. All you have is you bring the engineers close to the problem, you eliminate all the in-between nonsense and unnecessary overhead, and you just get stuff done. That's sort of what Agile means to me. But I think for a lot of people, Agile seems to mean something else. It means having... I don't know, Jira portfolio where you can like really control like that every team in the company needs to have a Jira board, needs to have all their tickets on the board. They all need to bubble up to other tickets, OKRs or something. So you really have a way for top level management to say what needs to get done and sort of for teams to break it down for top level management to see how far did the teams get? What is their velocity? All these questions. Mm. When Agile is more of a bunch of people having post-its on a whiteboard. It's probably a little bit misunderstood. So I think a lot of engineers, when they hear Agile, they actually understand, oh, they want to micromanage everything. When it literally means the opposite, it's very tragic. I felt like mentioning it. No, I think it's a really good thing to mention. I mean, again, that's conversations that we've had on this show with other guests before. It seems to be a common problem in the industry at the moment is Agile now comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. We need to start talking about Agile with a little a. You know, it is agility that we're after. We're not necessarily after the generally poorly implemented framework. We touched on Scrum and things like that during our conversation. And I think there's a hell of a lot of misunderstandings about Scrum as well and what that is, what it means and how you do it effectively. And then also, how do you scale it up and apply that across the business? Because I think businesses do kind of need some sort of framework to be able to say, we think that this thing will be done by such and such a date, Mm -hmm. but it's then how is that applied and how does that make the development team feel? And does that make the development team fast and effective or does it make them micromanaged? When I do digital transformation in an organization, to use that buzzword again, it is to try and give an organization a framework for understanding when functionality is going to be delivered, how best to prioritize it, all of that sort of stuff. But I don't want the teams to feel micromanaged. I want the teams to be as fast and productive as possible and change that paradigm so that it is marketers looking for something to market rather than marketers telling developers what to build. That's my ultimate goal, to always get as fast as you can possibly be. Yeah, I think the old adage, a watch pot never boils. (laughs) It's also quite true here. Like trust is quite a fundamental thing you need to have, of course. And sometimes you need time. And that's where I think it becomes important to scale an organization the right way, right? If you hire 100 marketing people, but you have two developers, you're going to get this situation where the marketers feel like, oh, we have so many ideas and customers are asking for so much stuff, but they just don't build it. If you have, I don't know, 100 developers and two marketers, developers are going to be sad, like, oh, we're building all these brilliant products, nobody's using them. I think the trust is probably the most important thing there, because often that's what's broken down in an organization. Development teams think that they're being given stupid things to do by marketing, and marketing think that the development team will never deliver anything. That's usually what you find in every organization. I think it's a common one, yeah. This is probably largely while I am skeptical of any sort of framework. I do acknowledge that it can make sense to like start with Scrum, particularly if you have a complicated problem to face and the team who doesn't exhibit the kind of behavior you want. But if you already have a good team, there's no need to make them use Scrum. Like you're going to tell them you can't tell each other when you're stuck anymore. You have to wait for the next daily. That's counterproductive. Absolutely. That's probably not how Scrum was meant, but who knows that? The connotations of all these things changed with all the agile coaching industry and all these ultimately people working on people versus people working on the product trying to be in control. Mm. That's really key. I think every company probably needs someone in management who knows what they do and how that looks like and how that works, what's actually happening. Otherwise, they are confined to needing frameworks and interfaces. I agree. Well, I think that's a good point on which to end. Unless there's anything else you want to add. <laughs> well, you asked what's next for me. So got to work a bit more on Poly Poly, I think, for sure. I just joined last year and we have quite big plans. Other than that, no huge plans, I think. I am sometimes thinking about, okay, what's next? What do I do after this? And I'm thinking about maybe some consulting. Maybe I would enjoy that. Maybe I will just actually take my break and build something <laughs> I feel like building. Or maybe I will really go full on to contributing more to open source projects. I always wanted to contribute to. I never managed to contribute to the Linux kernel, for example. That's big on my list. But I also want to build games for all the platforms I grew up with. So Z80 Assembler for Game Boy, Sega Mega Drive, whatever technology that one used, I forgot. <laughs> That's a project I always wanted to take a few weeks, maybe months and do. 
Start with a Sega Mega Drive emulator. Yeah, I actually <laughs> want to drive it so far that uh, my dream is to actually buy hardware that was used to develop back then and confine myself to that. So actually use the actual SNES wow. development toolkit from back then on a machine from back then. That sounds like a hobby. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it doesn't sound very profitable. I'm very interested in like the history of things, like how did things come about? How did people write software 40 years ago? I don't know. I'm not that old, but I want to find out. Well, again, this is the advantage of having the mythical man month on your shelf, you know. <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> no, I think that sounds great. That sounds really interesting. I'm sure we would love to start seeing more from you at conferences talking about these ways of working because I think they are unique. I've not come across anybody who's working in this way. I'm sure there's other people out there and it'd be great to hear from them. But this is pretty experimental to do open source development in a private company, as we mentioned before. It'd be good to hear more from you on those topics and maybe we can learn from your ways. I can try to become less of a hermit. <laughs> <laughs> we'll coax you out of your shell, but at least this is a good place to start. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for joining us, Felix. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for your time, Chris. Always nice to talk. Bye-bye. Cheers.